Hello, Peter. Hi, Adam. It's good to talk to you. Great to have you on the show. Everyone, this is Dr. Peter Glassman. I used his psychobiography on John Stuart Mill to put together my documentary. Could you tell us a little bit about that piece? What compelled you to write it? I don't know how it is for other writers who work in an academic environment. For me, what has always been most compelling is story. And for me, the story of John Stuart Mill is so intimately linked to the story of all of us um, because his story is, as you wrote in your documentary, the tale of our common struggle and his intensely urgent and personal struggle for freedom, for as much freedom as we're permitted to have as beings living on this earth in our various eras. For me, the story of Stuart Mill is a story of unalloyed heroism, of somebody who, by active will and by means of one of the most splendid intellects and splendid characters that has ever existed, um, contrived a way to invent himself as a person of liberty who nonetheless could remain loyal to the parents he loved, um, the civilization he loved. I wanted to write about Mill, too, because I can't think of anyone other than Freud who was so clear and cogent about the conflict that living in civilization proposes for every individual, and yet so in love with civilization, so committed to being cultural and being uniquely human. I wanted to write about him, I suppose, because I venerate him. And the more I could learn about his nature, how he created his nature, and what specifically, concretely, has seemed so heroic, was an adventure for me. And um, the research that I did, the writing that I did, has always made me feel uh, intensely close to him, more close than when I was just reading him almost every day. And that's something that you, as well as Nicholas Capaldi, bring up about Mill, is that even though he is frequently depicted in introductory philosophy courses as this cold utilitarian, mm -hmm. nothing could be farther from the truth. He was also deeply influenced by the Romantics. He was. Um, he was also radically influenced by his wife, and I think by women in general, not just women as people, but by women conceived of as the feminine. Yin and yang are misused terms. Mill lived in an age that was intensely patriarchal, um, probably not only overtly masculine, but overly masculine. Um, he was the first great advocate for women's freedom, was monumentally in influenced by women, despite the fact that his mother had virtually no impact at all upon his life or upon his consciousness. I think that the best book I have read on Mill in recent years is the Reeve biography that describes Mill as a political radical. But the more we read that wonderful book and the more we read the evidence that it cites, the more we realize that he was radical full stop, that this man who seemed to be in previous scholarly history regarded as a as an automaton, as you say, devoid of emotion, was actually a man of very extreme passion, 
um, who was politically and I think probably erotically intensely alive. And also when you're talking about being at once in love with civilization but also opposed to it. Mm. Before you said also in love with it, I was thinking of people like Nietzsche or even the Marquis de Sade, but when you're like that, you aren't necessarily going to go down in history. You're going to be vilified by large groups of people. So Mill was seditious in a covert manner. He was very influential, but he wasn't hated and despised, though <laughs> he was mocked for his feminist beliefs more than anything. Yes. I think you're absolutely right that he was subversive, but he was subversive in a truly precise and, I think, exceedingly valuable way. His acts of sedition were designed to make civilization the best that it could be. All of his insurrections, I think, emerged from such a passion for true mind, true culture, true distinction. We also think of him as civilization's greatest advocate, champion, and protector. All of his subversiveness against civilization, I think, was intended to correct imbalances that he perceived in it. I'm trying to think of a parallel, and I suppose a parallel might be that just as the prophet of each of the world's great religions has insisted that there ought not to be dogma and there ought not to be church, and so many of the world's leading religious figures have intended to return their faith tradition to its purity. I think Mill was a worshiper, a worshiper of civilization, civility, culture, mind, thought, community, and everything that he did that appeared to be subversive of civilization, I believe was actively protective of it, an attempt to return it to its purity and to rid it of false doctrine and unnecessary canons. He was, well, he was a massive fan of Socrates. That was his lifelong hero. So in many ways, he filled that role. You're right, he did. Um, and in much the same way, by being rigorously, or if I stay with the earlier metaphor, religiously committed to truth wherever truth took him, um, and often it took him directly into the very strong headwinds of popular opinion. Now, something that I wasn't able to take from your biography or from Capaldi's was Mill's exact religious views. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read his essays on religion yet, so I am curious about that. Well, it's a, an important question. It was in Mill's age, and I think it is exceedingly important in our age, in which there um, is such publicness that surrounds more and more people's religious convictions or their profession of them. I've been reading Mill throughout most of my life, certainly my adult life. I'm 70 now. I've, I've been reading Mill hard for 60 years since, since I was a child. I don't believe that in a sense that most Western people would express or even understand that Mill was religious. I think that, like Socrates, he believed in humanity at its best, at its brightest, at its most unalloyed. I think he 
was a lover of life. I think he was a lover of nature. Um, I believe that he was a lover of the universe and of existence, but I don't think he ever could find or was even very actively searching for a godhead. The most religious personality I can think of in recent history who most resembles Gandhi in temperament may be Gandhi. And Gandhi thought of himself as an adherent of all religions, regarded himself as deeply and devotedly religious in his sensibility, but probably we cannot assign to Gandhi um, a specific deity or theology that most people of faith would recognize as their own. Um, Mill was one of the most religious human beings I've ever encountered who had no religion, and I think despaired of there being one. He was often accused during his lifetime, um, not publicly, although sometimes mockingly publicly, of turning his wife into a deity and worshipping her. Uh, I don't think that was fair, but I think that he was somebody who had a yearning for belief, would have loved to have received and espoused a god if he could find one, could not. And his wife was a kind of substitute. And based on the few letters I've read, or read he certainly loved her passionately, or as passionately as anyone has loved a woman. I believe that's right. Um, and I believe it was reciprocated. This was a man whose life was agonizing in his childhood. He was actively suicidal in his 20th year, and he found abiding and profound fulfillment and happiness late in life. Part of what I began by saying is a, a story, um, a story most rich and beautiful. Now, going back to his upbringing, which is something that we all seem to focus on, because it was remarkable, although not as remarkable as people may think, because there were other child prodigies like Macaulay and Carlyle, folks like Thomas Young. I also did a documentary about, and then later in the 20th century, you had Sidus and all of the imitators that came after that. But each one of these stories is instructive in a way. Because with Sidus, you saw someone who was ruined by media attention. With Young, you see someone who was largely left to his own devices. And with Mill, you see someone who was controlled, but ultimately came out of it a better man. Yes, yes, on all accounts. Um, you're very well informed, Adam. I think you remember Conrad's phrase that seems to be iconic of modern life the fascination of the abomination. I think our fascination with Mill's experience is that it was not unlike our own. It was unlike our own in its extremism. It was unlike our own in its radical emphasis on intellection rather than on emotion, on dispassion rather than on self-driven passion. But I think what is universal about Mill's experience was the abomination of being controlled by adult authority, of being socialized, and of having the distortion, indeed the perversion of education be that instrument. All of us have known the anguish of 
having had our infancy and pre-conscious minds socialized, socialized in the name of learning, socialized in the name of rectitude, um, socialized in the name of love by figures whom we do love um, and by their representatives. I think the reason why no other element or aspect of Mill's life is so compelling for people who know very little about Mill is that we recognize the experience, we recognize the trauma, um, we recognize the suffering, and I think there's some part of us that is engaged as I was engaged by the miraculous story of somebody who by active mind worked through the constriction that was placed on his mind, the directiveness that was imposed upon it, and made himself not only the most famous man of thought in his lifetime throughout the world, but probably, I would argue, the man whose beliefs, faiths, ideas, and philosophies, and pronouncements have more influenced, probably more shaped, modern political and economic thought than anyone else. I would definitely agree that in the West, anyway, Mill reigns supreme. And in fact, his influence is so strong, people aren't even aware of it in some cases. That's correct. I think it's like Kleenex, and people don't realize that Kleenex is a brand name. Mill's ideas are so pervasive that everybody believes that it is um, common human thought. What he fought for often being pilloried to do that, now almost universally are regard, regarded either as human rights or um, what ought to be conferred as rights. They are concoctions of John Stuart Mill. In large measure, two small islands, both Western Greece and England, um, have done more than any other peoples, any other locales, to condition what we think of as human opinion, broadly. Well, in academia, the French and the Germans have had a pretty strong influence, but we can argue about whether that's been a good thing or not. Yes, we can. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because I will forget. I, I did want to mention that you know I've had an unusually extensive and protracted experience in China. Mill is also extraordinarily influential in China, again in ways that many people in China do not realize are um, Western and specific to Mill. But Mill's opinions about the danger of excessive control in government, in institutions, in families, in public opinion, Mill's ideals, um, his beliefs about political economics, his um, really all of his protocols and conventions are also broadly diffused throughout the Asian world, but especially in China. But few people know that. Few Chinese people, I mean, know that. Now, uh, could you elaborate a little bit? Does Has he influenced officials or academics? or? No, I think it's broader than that. I think he's influenced the culture um, of opinion. I, I think that what Mill believes about the appropriate relationship of individuals to groups comports in ways that are fascinating, obviously unintended, with, with Confucian values and with Confucian precepts. The notion that there are reciprocal responsibilities between community and individual um, 
the notion that the community's powers always will be too great inherently and too grasping at any moment in time and need to be countermanded um, is one that very broadly has disseminated itself through China in ways that are bound to cause trouble down the road because there is, of course, in power in, in China a, a political system and its occupants, its beneficiaries who do not want to redress the imbalance that they've done so much to create, but their populace does. And this is something I was going to bring up. John Stuart Mill's influence on our concept of personal autonomy and personal liberty is very strong, but people don't necessarily acknowledge that, and they choose to focus on utilitarianism and some of its more grim manifestations, because, of course, anything they want to disparage is automatically the grandfather of fascism and totalitarianism, which is completely wrong, of like everybody else, I tend to admire opinions I agree with. I've agreed with you all morning. Um, I find it not perplexing and certainly not laughable, but a matter for wonderment that anyone who knows anything about Stuart Mill's thought and teaching could conceive that it is supportive of totalitarianism. It is a common misbelief, but it is grotesque. Um, I can think of no other human being, including Socrates, who has more fiercely argued for and fought for the sanctity of not only individuation, but of difference, of not just tolerating disagreement, nurturing it, cherishing it, seeking it, believing in disagreement as the bedrock of all of our lives, I also cannot think quickly of any other human being in my knowledge, any other public figure in, of my knowledge, who has been such a responsible advocate for and prophet for pleasure, um, responsible pleasure. You had mentioned Desaad. You had, you had mentioned there are people who have been Sybarites. What Bill always sees as the commandment of his work and the first principle of our lives is to cherish, seek, embrace, and nurture pleasure, happiness. Um, he is in great contradistinction to most other major thinkers of any tradition in that regard. Um, it is very difficult for human beings to accept that pleasure can be moral and that our purpose in life as well as our greatest fulfillment in life, is to be happy. He is, of course, at such beautiful pain to always analyze and always discuss how one individual's pleasure can cause pain to another and trying to find balance between the wishes of the individual and the rights of others is part of what I have been characterizing this morning as his beauty. So in all of these regards, the notion that he is a pioneer of fascism is preposterous, but common. It, but his, he did have influence on the progressive movement, and he was in favor of some compulsory education, for instance. So he wasn't absolutely opposed to the state. He was not. What he was in favor of concretely 
let's use the example of state-mandated education, he was in favor of having the body politic command that there be opportunity for and access to education for everyone. He would have been appalled by the American experiment. In the- <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> what he always says in his letters and in many of his writings is that the state should mandate education, finance it, house it, protect it, and get out of the way, and allow as many models of education to flourish as possible so that individuals could determine which one worked best for them, collectively and individually. So, yes, he was in favor of state protections of the foundations for and the fundaments of liberty. And that sort of society in which the state is mostly used as a way for people to maximize their potential, maximize their happiness, is a good model and something we should consider adopting. It certainly is. It's, again, to go back to the word beauty, it's a beautiful dream. Um, the experience most humankind has had throughout most eras of our history has been tragic in that regard. And one of the fascinating things about Mill is that so many different political movements claim him as their own. Yes. Um, I don't think he would have been surprised by that, though it's always impossible to predict. I think he would have been elated that so many people, let's call them visionaries, of so many different visions could all see in him a root source that would that is as it should be given what we said this morning about his his objectives and his triumph with politics and with well he didn't really dabble in metaphysics not as much as some of his yeah. <laughs> his colleagues he was not arguing about the thisness of this glass yeah. and refuting Barclay thus yeah. kicking the stone. <laughs> <laughs> But I was arguing with a libertarian about J.S. Mill the other day, and with the Marxist, and they all seemed to view him as a thinker of their own. And that's because his philosophy is broad and malleable. It is. Um, I think it is of the essence of his teaching that it should be, because he strived with every power at his command of of thought and of language, a genius in in both of these media, um, to be malleable, to permit malleability, to persuade us that not to define, that not to make permanent, not to decide, was, was really crucial, not only to the interest of civilization, but to our own interests. Um, What a difficult task, he said himself, especially to make that argument without being ridiculous is supremely difficult. Well, he had Socratic wisdom. He realized that his system of thought, I mean, he did what Hegel claimed to do. Hegel, I, I have been corrected on that before, but I'm probably going to keep saying Hegel. But Hegel says, well, philosophy is evolving, but 
My system is the complete and the right one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you introduced that word. Has there ever been a thinker of anything like Mill's influence who has been more adverse to system? Um, He he repudiates the whole imagination of system, even though everyone thinks he was not only the descendant and heir and disciple, but the the pale shadow of of Jeremy Bentham, the ultimate systematist. I think you're right, the romantic. Yeah, most of the people I'm thinking of now had very systematic philosophies. Yes. Besides Nietzsche. I suppose what makes Mill so interesting to me and to so many of us is you mentioned Nietzsche and Hegel Hegel and when we think of the commanding figures of philosophy, they are to a large degree, people who somehow stand outside culture, beyond culture. Mill was a bourgeois man, happily, um, delightedly. He was somebody who would regard himself as, in a whole host of respects, ordinary. Somebody who blissfully inhabited the container of civilization and did not want to explode it at all. Well, I mean, Hegel was definitely, he and his thought system were subservient to the Prussian state. Yeah. He was really a godsend to them. Yes, he was. <laughs> I think you're right. It was much more liberal and progressive than many people like to depict it because it's been conflated with the propaganda of the First World War and then everything that happened between 1933 and 1945. Yes. But I'm having Franz on in a couple of weeks to talk about that. And so we won't go into too much detail there. Just before we depart this theme, remembering, I love to read autobiography and was reading the autobiography of Speer, Albert Speer. He says that Hitler told him once that he, Hitler, would be remembered as the greatest man who had ever lived or the worst in a long pause, depending on who wins the war. Um, I don't know that if he had won the war, it would have been possible to regard him as a great man, but there would have been an obligation to do. Well, when we think of figures like Hitler or Stalin or Robespierre, these monsters, perspective does matter because from on one hand, they're killing innocent people. On the other hand, they're killing monsters, according to their own propaganda. Yes, that's right. And... All of us who inhabit any polity do the same. Though we don't acknowledge it, we're doing it today. So when we use the word great, I suppose we can think of it in a Nietzschean sense, of someone who uses their will to overcome, to do incredible things. I believe that's right. And even someone like Napoleon, for instance, really a monster in many ways, but also a spectacular, energetic, and admirable man. And most of us who are living modern lives would say an indispensable man. Um, so much of the, so many of the constituent elements of, of modernist political and spiritual life were enforced by Napoleon, and I don't think we could do without them. And we have to wonder what would have happened to France if he hadn't come around. Yes. Would they just have continued 
murdering people? Would it have been one grand terror after another? Most likely. And he did disseminate a lot of these, what we consider good ideas to other countries about democratic government. He did, and um, so many of the core elements of statism were Napoleonic, uh, from standing professional army to code of law to civil service to conceiving of potentially very dangerous but also indispensable administrative structure as a primary state function. Postal service is good. And the Napoleonic law code. Unless you're a woman. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we have veered a little little off topic. People my age tend to gripe and groan always about the ignorance of every person one month younger than themselves. I keep finding myself filled with admiration for curiosity, the avidity of of young people, um, the Catholicism of their research and learning, uh, their openness to um, what can be not only challenging but painful to to their own presuppositions. I've been a lifelong teacher, so I've been blessed to be surrounded by hungry young learners, but I, Mm -hmm. I think your generation is doing just fine with its literacy. Just going about it in a different way. It is the age of Proteus. Mm-hmm. I think this is a wonderful phrase. One in which we're all shape-shifting and yes. trying to reconcile. I think, although many people might perceive their age as one of synthesis in the Hegelian sense, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking of this as numerous theses and antitheses and we are trying to reconcile them all. And undoubtedly, you're also seeing something even more radical in China. We are. I have traveled widely in a largely unplanned life. Wherever I go in the world, especially in the last several years, I see immense change underway. Perhaps it's most conspicuous to Western people in China, but... I find it more evident in the West even than in the East. I think there is an ever-growing sense among vast swaths, sectors of people that the prevailing life of the common human routine and its systems are broken and that change is needed. Um, Change not only in our ideas about value and virtue, but the ways in which we think about, organize, and conduct our lives great change is, is sweeping the world in a manner that may not be visible and may not be traditionally revolutionary, but I believe huge change is coming worldwide. One of the big questions, and the one that I think was nearest and dearest to Mill's heart that we've already talked about here is the relationship of the individual to the state. Yes. And on, here in the United States, we have shifted to the point of thinking the state is totally dispensable, completely unnecessary. And this belief is held by people on the right, but unconsciously in many ways by people on the left as well. And the government is there to provide things, and that's it. I agree with you, Adam. And I think one symptom and sign of that belief 
though it's never talked about this way, is the large number of people who choose not to vote. Um, I, I think that is not simply an irresponsible indolence. I, I think it is among the dispossessed, among people who feel themselves to be powerless, a decision not to participate in an idea about power that they regard as as um, belligerently absurd. And I think government is being done away with in the only way that, that people who believe themselves to have no power can do away with it. They will not participate. They won't. And in a system like ours, one without a parliament, it is a little more understandable. It is. And you should vote because there are differences between the parties. There are different companies backing them. In my lifetime, I've come to believe there are differences among individuals. Um, I find all parties, all systems, uh, all, all fixed canons, creeds, and churches equally empty. Um, but I have undying faith in individuals and take them wherever I can find them for my part. So I wish young people or middle-aged people or elderly people who choose not to vote would at least seek and support individuals in whom they believe they can believe. Anyhow, this has been fascinating. I not usual to find someone with an intellect as fine as yours and with an education as advanced as yours to be so generous. And you, you are a generous thinker. It's a pleasure to talk with you. You are welcome, and I am proud to call myself an autodidact, a dropout, high school dropout. <laughs> That's where most of the important learning in the world in our lifetime has been taking place. And in the Victorian age, which was my field of special interest, so many of the great Victorians were autodidacts, they had to be. Ultimately... That's the only way to learn, because at a certain point, you need to create your own structure. You're not always going to have a teacher or a professor badgering you or holding your hand. I think that's right, and I think most pedagogues, without intending to, um, are trying to impose their own worldview on people over whom they are consciously or unconsciously asserting authority. So it is best to be your own authority. It, it depends on the subject. I definitely think economics could use a little bit of the spirit of Socrates. Yes. yes. But yes. philosophy, even though it has some really bizarre practices now, especially in some of the Foucaultian, Marxist, feminist areas, it still has that openness and questioning. It does. And I think much of the scientific community does as well, worldwide. Um, not all of it. Much has been subjugated, much has been commercialized. But again, I've traveled widely, and wherever I travel, I often find the most open-hearted, open-minded people are scientists. And this may shock you. I find people in many countries in a position of command leadership in the military are very open-minded people, um, Humanists who know that their closed minds kill. Most military people who I know are appalled by death and are peacemakers. It took me by great surprise, but I've come to believe that. 
I know only a few, but Oop, yes, I, I can say off. the same. And so concludes our interview. But Dr. Glassman will certainly be back. Thank you for listening. Good night.